Hello, and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The Ems Report. In this specially extended episode, we're thrilled to have with us none other than the naturalist, presenter, conservationist, and a million other things besides Chris Packham, who's going to let us know exactly what he thinks of the state of politics today. And he also has a special message for our newly minted Prime Minister, Liz Truss, which is a treat. But before that, in our Big Green News section, we're going to look at what to expect from the new Prime Minister by looking at some of the Green-related pledges that she's made on her route to number 10. Then, after the interview with Chris Packham, Simon Pickstone and Alice Fillon will be along, and they're going to let us know how England's sewage scandal has drifted across to the continent, where politicians are, quite understandably, not very happy. So... Without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. I'm Rachel Salvage, and today I'm here with Tess Colley, and we're going to look at the big green news of the fortnight, which is essentially the rise of Mary Elizabeth Truss. Did you know that she went to a state school, Tess? Did you hear that? I heard that on a few a few uh, media yeah. outlets. Yeah, you heard it here last. Yeah. Um, so, so this is a departure from the usual format. We're going to spend this section just running through the pledges that Truss has made during her campaign. We're going to look at the ones that are likely to have an impact on green policy and the environment, whether that's for better or for worse. Um, so energy is clearly going to be a priority for Truss, and she's already announced that she's going to act fast to tackle the crisis. I think an energy price freeze plan is in the offing very, very soon. Um, but what she said during the campaign is a little bit confusing. She seems to support net zero, but at the same time has promised to slash green levies and appears to be a little bit keen on fossil fuel. Uh, can you untangle this a bit for us, Tess? Well, yeah, as you say, it is all a bit confusing. I think she's, uh, yeah, she says she backs net zero. Um, we'll talk about it later, but she backs biodiversity. But when she actually talks about the things she's not happy with, you know, solar farms in um, in fields uh, and, and that sort of thing, it doesn't all seem to add up. Like you say, fossil fuels. Um, she, there's been some reports in various newspapers that there could be, you know, a, a kind of green light giving to new fracking within days or within weeks, whatever. It looks, you know, it's something that it could happen potentially. So that's that's one thing people are going to be looking out for. Um, and as you say, on the green energy levy, um, she's been quite clear from the outset that you know she she thinks that should be suspended uh, to help address the cost of living crisis. Um, mm. So yeah, these are these things have all got campaigners a bit a bit worried. Yeah, it doesn't all add up. I mean, she's been clear that she doesn't like solar for a while. When she was environment mm. secretary, she cut subsidies for solar then, and she's called them a you know called it a blight on the landscape. Mm. Um, but she did say, I think it might have been on the Coonsberg program or maybe it was somewhere else that she would make it easier to install um, solar on rooftops, domestic and industrial. So maybe there is a little bit of flex mm. in there, uh, or maybe that was a sop to. You know, people who've been criticising her. I guess. Yeah. I guess we'll see. I suppose so, but it, it kind of there, there's a big issue with all these things she keeps saying. And you talk about solar farms on on productive agricultural land, but the, the reality is there's you know there's barely if you compare the amount of land used for solar farms, something like zero point zero eight percent total land use agriculture, something like seventy percent. Yeah. Of of so it just doesn't it the, the the numbers are ridiculous when you look at them like that. So yeah, there's a bit of a Sounds False. like there's mm. the space. <laughs> there's a space, a bit yeah. of space. Um, and she said, so she would move ahead faster with nuclear. I mean, I, I don't know what that, I mean, nuclear is notoriously very slow to, to put in place. Um, yeah. And that she would sort of 
look more at North Sea oil exploitation. Well, mm-hmm. I shouldn't say oil specifically, but in the North, um, in exploitation of the North Sea, which would be gas, uh, potentially, and oil. Um, yeah. uh, do you have any more on that? Uh, well, like you say, she said, she talks a lot about energy security and that we, we've got a really big issue uh, with it, which, you know, is, is not untrue. We have got an issue um, with the amount of energy that we produce, but a lot, a lot of people say we need to look to renewables. She says we need we need to use everything we've got and it will bring bills down and that sort of thing. But I think that again has been proved not necessarily true because the gas that any, you know, energy, any gas or oil uh, produced from the UK would be sold on the international markets at international yeah. prices. So um, that that's, there's also a bit of a, an issue, an issue with that. Uh, but yeah, and she's, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg who supported her um, throughout this campaign and is tipped to, to get one of, one of the big jobs um, as Secretary of State for Business and Energy, he's talked about wanting to take every cubic inch of gas out of the North Sea. Mm. Um, so I think that certainly the direction that we would perhaps be headed in. Mm. Yeah, and then in the same breath, supporting net zero. I mean, I don't know how you can how you can do both of those things. Um, but she did say she she doubled down on net zero in a conservative way. So maybe <laughs> tucked into that euphemism, it means. You're not, you're not going to get it at all or there's something we'll find out what that euphemism means i imagine at yes. some point i know as long as they're not putting the solar farms in conservative constituencies maybe it will be okay <laughs> yeah. i haven't heard much front on wind from her have you no no i mean apart from the fact that they you know the offshore better than onshore onshore is mm. no good that's uh, mm. rishi sunak said they had, they had the same arguments but it's all it, the, the focus has been on solar and mm-hmm. I think that is part of, you know, kind of speaking to the the farming audience, definitely. Mm. Yeah, so now she's got to be talking to, well, she's obviously talking to the Tory party faithful, but now she's got to talk to the country. And I wonder if people are going to have the same, you know, reaction given, you know, the intense heat waves and, and things that we've been experiencing. Maybe people are over that now. Yeah, well, I think, I if, I don't know. But look, whenever you look at surveys, I can't remember the names of the surveys now, but um, when they've polled conservative members, uh, things like renewables um, and action on, on climate change and net zero tend to poll quite highly. Mm. Um, but like you say, that's what she's talking to the general uh, public now. Um, mm. But climate change is going up the agenda, so we can only hope, Rachel. It is, I do hope. Well, it's, it's reported that she's going to attend both of the uh, cops, those are the climate cop and the biodiversity cop. I mean, if that's true, that's that is a good sign. Um, it's a positive signal, if nothing else. Um, so we need to move on from uh, energy. Let's let's talk about deregulation. We have we talked about this last time on the eco chamber, and I do touch on this later with Chris Packham. Um, but when when Trust was Environment Secretary, she oversaw some of the deepest cuts to the Environment Agency in Natural England, and that's something we've reported on. Uh, mm-hmm. on ends and she's made really plain her desire to light this bonfire of the quangos and she wants to review or repeal all the remaining uh eu laws on the uk statute books but but, but let's look at that a bit closer what does that mean which are the regulations because a lot of these are environmental regulations obviously mm. are people most concerned about and, and what's likely to happen to them well the, the the big one that a lot of people are worried about is the the Harab habitats regulations that come from mm. the habitats, the EU habitats directive, and they underlie a whole host of things, um, kind of that make up the planning and environmental regime in the UK. Um, I mean, we heard her say during the campaign that she, you know, she was going to cut nutrient neutrality rules, yeah. um, and they are underpinned by the habitats regulations. And the government was already kind of 
making noises about you know wanting to to change them um to to match the post the post um brexit uk environmental landscape that sort of language mm-hmm. um then that could be very bad because the nutrient neutrality was all about water quality and you know protecting internationally important sites from nutrient pollution um and that's the same same time as saying she will cut this and cut that and you know get rid of all this red tape so that we can build 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 uh, mm. she says that she's committed to you know improving our biodiversity and um that's what she said to the conserv in the um, kind of her statement to the conservative environment network she was fully committed to um halting the decline of biodiversity by 2030 that target in the environment act However, much like with the energy and net zero discussion, how can you how can you say you're going to do this to meet these targets whilst also saying you're going to get rid of all the things that underpin them? Mm, yep, it's just yeah, it, it sounds good, and then they're going to remove all the tools that will help you get there. Mm, it, yeah, it is uh, a very very concerning. Unless there's you know some new way that we haven't heard of that we're going to you know maybe some voluntary business uh, proposals. Mm, those voluntary regulating kind of things that we know work so well as you can see in the sewage arena uh, so let's let's move on so we've talked about energy we've talked about um uh, some of these regulations that are at risk let's have a look at who is potentially going to be in her cabinet this is this episode is being recorded before we actually know who's going to be in the cabinet but there has been a good piece in the times um that's probably very well sourced um suggesting who might be in key roles and we've also heard it from a few of our sources too. So I mean, you've already mentioned Reese Mogg, um, who looks like I think he was mooted for sort of housing and leveling up, and now it looks like he's going to be energy, um, business and energy, which would include the climate change mm-hmm. brief, I guess. Yes. And what do we know about what what he thinks about net zero? And you know, mm. is he does he going to double down in a conservative way? <laughs> well, have- maybe we'll see what that conservative way is. Mm. I mean, he's been very you know, he's not really hidden i think what he thinks his a lot of his comments are made that of course you know supports net zero few would say they don't um however he questions whether or not we need to move so fast in certain ways and why do you know if we have to make certain sacrifices he's been you know he was previously reported i think earlier this year um like i said earlier to, to he was previously reported uh, telling AB, he was previously reported in an LBC radio interview saying, like I said earlier, once you know we should be extracting every last cubic inch of gas from the North Sea, and that 2050 yeah. is a long way off, um, and we're not trying to become net zero tomorrow. He said, um, and we're going, I'm going, we're going to need fossil fuels in the interim, and that's a line you, you hear uh, churned out quite a lot because the Climate Change Committee, you know, did say we might need some in the interim, but. We need to stop, obviously, commissioning new fossil fuels. Um, and yeah, he sees it's going to be a huge cost and one that isn't maybe necessary. Mm. But he has so many children. Doesn't he need to be thinking about the kind of world that they're going to be living in? That's, uh, that's oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they'll be fine, Rachel. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. Yes. And then um, we have uh, Raniel Jayawadina. And he has been mooted for the environment secretary role. And I don't know a great deal about him. So this is so he was uh, mentioned in the Times piece, but a couple of our sources have said that they've heard it fairly reliably. I mean, things might change, um, but that, that, that he might be in post. Um, what do we know about him? Well, yeah, like you say, not, not a huge amount. He's a relative unknown, certainly in the environmental 
kind of sphere where he's what he's been known for is being a trade minister um mm -hmm. which is you know i suppose how he's how he's um kind of worked with trust before uh and you know trust has been known to have been kind of frustrated previously by defra's resistance to opening up um foreign food markets in a way that mm -hmm. would undermine uh kind of uk farmers but we saw that you know the nfu coming out strong against the australian and new zealand trade deals um that was a real issue and so potentially she's thinking if she puts um jawadina in in defra maybe a few more of those trade deals will go through maybe she's thinking he'll he'll be less kind of less soft with the nfu who knows Hmm, that would be very interesting. <laughs> See the, the NFU bits on being tough with the NFU. That would be uh, an interesting argument to uh, witness. Um, and is there anybody else in the cabinet that we're particularly interested in? Well, we've got Simon Clark, who's uh, tipped for housing secretary, which right. is interesting because the, the well, if it's going to, still going to be called the Leveling Up, um, the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill. Um, is currently going through through Parliament, and that contains all the big kind of overhaul to environmental impact assessments, and um, which again brings in the habitats regulations uh, and potential changes there. Um, and so he's going to be looking after that. Um, I think again, there's a there's a bit of a kind of emphasis on deregulation with him. Sort of the similar themes coming up again and again. This is according to the Times. That is. Mm. Um, so yeah, those those are interesting ones. Um, those are the interesting ones, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, well, this is all going to be very interesting. We've got a lot of deregulatory fans uh, in the cabinet. I think it might even be a little bit stronger that way than it was under Johnson. Is that right? Do you think that's right, Tess, or is it about the same? I, I think it's, it's, it seems to be um, a bit turbocharged. Talking about you mm. know scrapping the nutrient neutrality rules, mm. we haven't had anything said that explicitly um, mm. so far. So that that if she if follows through with that, I think probably looking at mm. something a bit stronger, or just a little less coy about it. Mm, yes, <laughs> maybe. maybe. Yes. Okay. Well, moving on now, that's the end of our big green news section. I'm thrilled to say that we have Chris Packham here with us in the Eco Chamber. As you will all know, Chris is a naturalist, a presenter, a writer, photographer, conservationist, campaigner, filmmaker. Have I, have I missed anything out, Chris? That's a huge amount and very impressive. I think wannabe artist is the uh, only one that you might have missed out, but um, oh, I still right. keep daubing and sculpting, but I keep most of my creations to myself. I won't inflict the, those on the world at this point in time. Oh, it's something to look forward to then. Are you a plan for the future? I'm taking three months out next year in the spring uh, to do some brutalist sculpture of animals. So um, it's something that I've been wanting to do for ages, and I've had a very, very busy year, uh, well, 14 months so I could do with a bit of creative break. And um, so, yeah, I'm going to find a, find myself a, a sort of a lockup or a unit somewhere. And I've been making some cardboard maquettes of my uh, fantasies. And, um, yeah, I'm going to bolt, bolt a few of them together and, and, and see how they work. Um, it may be an entirely complete waste of time, but, but who knows? I'll, I'll enjoy the process anyway. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Look forward to seeing those. We're here today really to talk about um, the new Prime Minister-to-be, Liz Truss. So we found out today for sure it was confirmed that Liz Truss is going to be the next Prime Minister. Um, and before sort of getting into the details of her legacy and, you know, the things she's been saying in, in the hustings, I just wanted to get your, your kind of knee-jerk reaction. You know, how do you feel about the fact that we, we're going to have Liz Truss as our, as our Prime Minister? 
Well, I, firstly, I'm aggrieved at the lack of democracy because the nation hasn't chosen our prime minister. A tiny cohort of paid up members of the Conservative Party have done so, less than 1% of the UK population. Um, so that doesn't suit my my you know mind too too well and makes me quite yeah. uncomfortable really um so that's not good we already have our being governed by a party that didn't secure a majority of uh, votes but but due to the um the gerrymandering of the election boundaries sees them with a very large majority um and we i think we can universally agree that we've been living through the worst period of politics certainly in my lifetime i'm 61 years old um but I've heard people older than me make the same claim, and not just in the UK, but in other parts of the world too. And I suppose what we've seen in, in recent times is a total lack of accountability and a brazen disregard for, for what the people of this country expect in our elected representatives. You know, I mean, I, when I was brought up, you know, and obviously there were politicians who I didn't like when I became politically aware, and I now look back at at them and I think, well, at least they were statesmen and women. They 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 had codes of conduct which they adhered to. Um, they were proper. I may not have agreed with their beliefs and the decisions that they made, but you would respect them for being, you know, as I say, statesmen and women. But at the moment, I think it's it's very hard to manifest that. Uh, respect too broadly. Having said that, I must immediately put a caveat in and say that I'm fortunate enough to work with a number of MPs um, who I think are great politicians and I think they're motivated in the right way and they have laudable aims and objectives. But we haven't really had a parliament for some time, have we? We've had a cabinet that's been making all of the decisions. And again, that goes against, I think, the, our systems of, of, of democracy, if there were any vestiges of that left. So we're not in a great place, uh, that's for sure. Um, and now, of course, we, we've had further change. We don't know precisely what to anticipate with Liz Truss as the Prime Minister. We're still going to be leg living with Boris's legacy for some time because changes can't be um, instant, even if they're wished for. Um, so that mess will take some time to, to clear up. And, and of course, Liz has come with her own agenda, as she rightly should, of course. But it is it an agenda that's going to suit the needs of our nations at this point in time? That's the question. Yeah, she looks to be the kind of the continuity candidate that by some of the people who are supporting her. Is that, is that what you, you feel too? Yes, and who wants this type of continuity? Uh, we need change at this point. We don't want the continuity that we've had. We've all suffered because of that. We've seen some grotesque mistakes made um, in terms of, uh, of of governance, and you know, and and it is making people angry. And, and I think that what's brewing here is is a perfect storm, in the sense that we've got um, a cost of living crisis, we've got an energy crisis, we've got politically unstable situations across um, the world. We, 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 everyone seems to have stopped talking about Brexit, but from what I hear from individuals that I meet and speak to, it's having quite a significant impact on their, on their lives. Um, invariably, in, in, in a negative way, that's gone off the agenda. We're still reeling from COVID, and it's still having an enormous impact, and it's likely to do so for the foreseeable future because new variants will emerge. Some will be more dangerous than others. We have 
you know, public bodies in, in, in a state of extreme disrepair because they've been underfunded for so, so very long. Um, and that's not just the NHS, that's Natural England, the Environment Agency. I mean, you know, I have a lot of grievances with Natural England and the Environment Agency, but at the same time, I, I have to accept that a lot of those grievances are motivated by the fact that they've been underfunded, they've been cut, 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 they have less resources, less people to do the work that I and others would like them to do. So we have to be realistic um, in terms of our demands upon them. And Liz, again, you know, as we know, when she was Secretary of State for the Environment, she cut funding to the Environment Agency. And now we have this terrible problem with uh, our water quality issues, farmland runoff, nitrates, phosphates, etc. And now, of course, all of the, the sewage overflows that have been taking place due to extreme weather events. And Basically, no development in, in terms of the infrastructure required to soak up a lot more sewage over a lot more time. So, again, no, no, no points for Liz on that one. Yeah. I was trying to get a sense. I mean, you've kind of anticipated my question of, of, of uh, what kind of person she's going to be like in terms of environmental policy um, by looking at her time as environment secretary. But there wasn't really anything happening apart from these cuts. And I heard Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell talking on their podcast. Um, and uh, Rory Stewart was saying that she'd said a couple of things to him. One, don't be interesting. And two, find lots of things to cut. And I mean, I think that it's it's quite disappointing to to hear that. But I maybe I've missed something. Can you remember some you know some good progress between sort of twenty fourteen twenty sixteen when she was in charge? That that was a deliberately long pause. Uh, no, I can't. I, I I remember it ending in in one of the worst ways possible. I, I'm pretty sure that it was on the last day of her tenure in that position that the lead ammunition groups report was uh, was judged upon. Right. Um, and and basically, an enormous amount of scientific research had gone into how, how what a damaging uh, impact lead shot was having on on the environment. And this was an opportunity to finally instigate some meaningful reform to, to UK hunting and shooting uh, to make the environment safer. Uh, it, lead shot, I should just highlight, kills a hundred thousand birds in in the UK because it's ingested accidentally every year. A hundred thousand birds are needlessly dying because we're still spraying a toxic substance into into their habitat. And you don't need me to tell you that we've taken lead out of paint, pipes and petrol because it's very, very harmful. And what we at Wild Justice... Uh, Mark Avery, Ruth Tingay and myself have discovered is that there's still bountiful lead entering the human food chain through species that have been shot with it. And this presents all sorts of problems for the shooting fraternity because, you know, there's a surfeit of birds, 53 million pheasants and, and redneck partridges being introduced, causing enormous ecological damage. Then they're being shot and then we can't even eat them because they're toxic. I mean, it's madness. And, and, and again, part of that could have been uh, uh, alleviated if Liz Truss had taken the advice of the lead, lead ammunition group and, and instigated a, a phasing out or a ban on lead shot, which we still don't have. And, and there's been voluntary agreements, but none of them are being met. Whenever we sample game, um, which we do every winter um, during the season, we find it's packed full of lead, sometimes many thousands of times uh, more than would be acceptable for, you know, chicken, lamb, similar meat products. So what's the sort of hunting lobbies, what's their counter argument to to what the, the reason they want to continue using it 
Do they have well, a I could be glib and say tradition and the fact that they they don't want to have some of their older weapons modified to use steel shot. Um, but in other parts of the world, most notably and, and, and closest to us, Denmark, a ban was instigated and it had no impact on the shooting fraternity uh, uh, at all. A few grumpy men, but apart from that, nothing. Uh, what we've had within shooting is a period of time where there was no or little regulation. And, and you know what it's like. It's a lot harder to take things away from people than to not give it to them in the first place. And they've got used to doing things which are no longer or, uh, uh, applicable um, and tolerable. And, and when we tell them that they need to change, um, they're obviously not too happy about it because they're not a fraternity that likes being asked to do things for, by, by people like myself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you mentioned before about um, Natural England and uh, the Environment Agency. Um, can you update us on some of the work that you've been doing with uh, related to uh, general licenses in Natural England? And then sort of on, on that, your experience with people on the ground, because we've had um, people from both of those regulators, uh, whistleblowers come to us and saying that they can't do their jobs properly because they're not funded to or they're actually not. It's like a political will that they're not you know, being told for example, if it's water, to go out and you know to go out and visit these pollution incidents or to monitor as much as they used to. Is that the kind of experience that you're having when you're meeting people well, on the ground? What, what we do with Wild Justice is we try to make sure that the environmental legislation that we have, which was drafted obviously when we were uh, part of the EU and can be and could be actually quite robust and useful, is implemented and upheld. But all too often what we see is that it's misinterpreted, it's not implemented, it's not upheld, and as a consequence, it's meaningless. And so what we have been doing is looking at a number of specific cases where we think there are, you know, there is a strong uh, legal case to ask these people to change their practices. Um, you know, so the general licenses, for instance, so a general license is uh, uh, gives someone, a landowner or someone with the landowner's permission to go out and essentially shoot a, a particular type of a list of birds um, at any time of the year. Um, uh, and they would be previously described as test species. Uh, but, you know, if, if, that, if they were being shot because they needed uh, to be controlled because they were damaging crops, for instance, then the general license says that you should look at other means of managing them before you shoot them. That might be netting them away from your crop or using a bird scare or, or, or something like that. Um, and in some instances, that wouldn't be functional, wouldn't work. But but that, that wasn't being done. And what we saw was a, a lot of, you know, needless killing of birds. That were, And it was basically just vandalism. And so we questioned that. And we said, you know, did all of these birds ought to be on the list? Some of them had been on that list for, for donkey's years, and, they, and it was entirely inapplicable for them to be there. So we asked for them to be removed. And we continue to seek reform, both in Wales, uh, England, and in Northern Ireland, to those general licences. And um, I saw recently that I think Natural Resources Wales was consulting on uh, new licences for um, fish-eating birds on, the, on Welsh rivers because the, some of their fish stocks were... Uh, struggling and I'm not an expert but I wouldn't have thought that it's actually the fish eating the birds that's the major problem there given what we know about you know farm and sewage pollution especially in rivers like the Wye. Exactly they're looking they're looking for scapegoats aren't they their, their, their answer is always to kill something because they think that that will provide a short-term solution but it's ecologically flawed as you've pointed out it's like the Cape of Curly and all, everyone in Scotland saying well there are too many pine martens we need to shoot all the pine martens the, you mm. know you need a functional ecology and that involves pine 
Martins and Capercaillie. There were reasons why the Capercaillie are declining, as there were reasons why the, the fish are declining in those Welsh rivers. And it's not down to fish-eating birds. And any sane ecologist knows that. The problems are, 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 are complex, but nevertheless, there were plenty of more culpable uh, you know, you know, parties than, than a few gooseanders, some herons and cormorants. I was going to say, cormorants don't complain that much. <laughs> you don't hear from them when they're being uh, persecuted. Um, so can we move on to uh, Liz Truss again, because we, we're, coming, we're moving away from her. So looking at what some of the things that she's said during the hustings. So she has talked about wanting to light a bonfire of the quangos. Um, you know, she's been very clear that she doesn't like, particularly like civil servants very much and that, 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 that the service should be a lot smaller. Um, and she has said, and this is a quote, as Prime Minister, I will review all Quangos, clamp down on sprawling arms length bodies and expunge those that aren't fit for purpose, which wouldn't be a bad idea if they weren't already on their knees, I guess. And then alongside that, she's said that she's going to, I think Tress and Sunak were kind of in this race to show who hated these retained EU laws the most. And I think she has pledged to get rid of, repeal or review all of them by the end of uh, next year. And it's kind of like who can who would get rid of them the fastest. And obviously among those laws, a lot of those are environmental, obviously. About there are about two thousand four hundred and five hundred and seventy belong to DEFRA, three hundred and eighty to Bays. And among those are birds and habitats directives and the regulations that flow from those. So I was like, wanted to know what, what you thought about Well, a lot a lot of people worked very hard to draft that legislation at a time when they were recognizing how desperately we needed it. A lot of the legislation needs upgrading because times have changed subsequently. It takes a long time to put these laws together. And what we don't need is the wholesale trashing of that legislation with with, with nothing appropriate in place to uh, to, to replace it. Um, the, the replacing of it is it seems to be an unnecessary costly exercise in the first place. We could just leave as it is or uh, as a basis for improvement. When I say leave it as it is, use it as the foundation for improvement. And we should be upgrading those laws, not downgrading them when it comes to protecting the environment and, and species that live in it. And, and we know what will happen in a bonfire of, of that sort of legislation. It will not be properly replaced. The, 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 the insidious lobbying, uh, lobbying bodies that have seen a, a stranglehold on DEFRA, Natural England, the Environment Agency, etc., will be in there making sure that they weaken as, as much of that as they possibly can. And, and, and in the meantime, as if we conservationists don't have enough to do, we'll have to turn our attention to that. It's, it's, it's frankly... Bonkers. Bonkers. I mean, some of the recent reforms are already underway. There's the Nature Recovery Green Paper, which is trying to, you know, rehash how things are named, these, all these protected areas and, and things. But it looks as though, I mean, is, is it just more rearranging of, of deck chairs? I mean, and as another question, is are these regulations working anyway? You said they need strengthening, but if you look at, you know, our biodiversity indicators for this country, I mean, they're, they're appalling and they're dropping you know they're dropping off a cliff themselves no they're not they're, they're not working uh, we look we know the state of nature report paints a very grim picture we're one of the most nature denuded countries in in the world um many of our principal habitats uh, are in decline and 13 percent of our monitored species are in danger of extinction our own backyard is going to hell in a handcart it needs a it needs a, a lift up not a knock down at this point it needs strengthened legislation, meaningful legislation, which can be properly implemented, where situations can be policed, and there are and there is funding to pay for the policemen, and the policemen effectively are are, are those civil servants. 
And the civil servants, in a way, if you like, the people who, who staff Natural Environment Agency and, and DEFRA, if they were the right people, given the right amount of resources, could do the right job. But they're not. They're, they haven't got the right resources. Some of them are very definitely not the right people. Um, and, they're, and they're not sufficiently empowered to make a difference. And that's why people like Wild Justice, us, um, are, are giving them a bit of a hard time because we're constantly trying to keep them on their toes. As sympathetic as we are, uh, we are to the fact that they're, they're difficult to keep on their toes because their sandals have been taken away from them, um, the, the fact they still need to be accountable. And, and, and at the moment, there's a lack of accountability just about everywhere, it, it seems. So um, it, we do feel a, a, a compulsion to make sure that we draw people's attention to the fact that there is a crisis here. And, and that crisis is, is not helped by the fact that, you know, these people have been severely weakened. I mean, I remember, you know, Natural England going way back when it was the Nature Conservancy Council, and they were an advisory body to government. And the idea is that if you are elected into government and you don't know too much about nature, you listen to advice. Isn't that what civil servants are there for? They're the expert. I mean, let's, not, let's hit the nail on the head. I know nothing about Ming vases, right? If I, if I needed to make some decisions about Ming vases, I would go to an expert. What does Liz Truss know about ecology? What she knows is that she, she needs to be able to go to an expert for her to make the best informed decision. But if she isn't making, and so many of our politicians aren't making the best informed decisions because what was it they said? We've had enough of all of these experts. Then we are in deep, deep trouble. Because we are electing people with no manifest ability to govern in the right, proper, proper, uh, right or proper way, and they're not listening to the people who could give them the, uh, the, the direction um, to, 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 to travel in. It, it's, it, well, I, I don't know what to say, really. It's just desperate. It's absolutely desperate. I love experts. I'm the polar opposite of, of Michael Gove and Liv Trust. You know, I love, I love more those, the things that I don't know than the things that I do, because it's exciting to learn them. Mm. Yeah, well, whether she knows about nutrient neutrality or not, she, that's one of the things that she's, according to the Telegraph, said that she would like to ditch because it's one of those uh, guidelines that Natural England has issued to, to local authorities to say that you can't or you should not approve development if they are going to add more pollution, more nutrient pollution to areas that are already suffering from it and areas that are already protected. That seems to make sense to me and you, doesn't it? I mean, that's, isn't that what we should be doing at this point? We've got a biodiversity crisis going on. The last thing we need to do is pour more poisons into an environment when we know we should be taking, making more effort to take those already in it out. Yes, well, no, not according to Liz. And that's, um, I think, you know, you can sort of feel the, the hand of the you know, housing or construction lobby behind this. I mean, obviously, there's a housing crisis. <laughs> housing Powerful crisis. lobbyists. Do you know, if I had the big red magic button, there would be so many things it would be tempting to, 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 to be able to solve by pressing it. But I would take those lobbyists out of the equation. They're probably doing more damage than anything else when it comes to the environment and certainly in the UK. And we all know who they are, and I probably didn't ought to name them, but we know who run DEFRA, and we know who's running Natural England and everything else. And it's, it's those lobbyists. They shouldn't have access to, to those people. They, can't, they cannot be trusted to make the right decisions under that intensity of insidious vested interest lobbying. Yeah. Speaking of which, she's also said that, that uh, she would like to... Um, is this where it gets better? Or is, are we still going <laughs> so, to... Are we, uh, we're, no, we're still on the downward spiral. Oh, dear. Well, okay. well, 
I'm supposed to be impartial on it. Anyway, um, she said she wants to lift the ban on fracking and go for more exploitation of North Sea fossil fuels. So right, okay, so here we are. We're in the, we're the of, we've gone from bonkers to balmy. Um, what was Liz doing? Was she sleeping through forty degrees centigrade? Has she not turned on the news and seen Pakistan getting washed away with with with, with colossal loss of life and and, and and economic hardship? Has she not she what she didn't smell the wildfires that were burning in the UK in London, let alone um, you know all the way across Australia and the United States and Greece and Portugal and frankly the the whole of the world. Um, what, what is it that's passing them by? What, what what part of their brain isn't engaging with the fact that we are in the biggest crisis our species has ever faced and we need to do something about it now? And we know that, that subsidising and exploring the potential of further exploitation of fossil fuels is frankly barking mad. It has to stop. Fracking, fracking, oh... I, I, just rearrange the letters in a bit of a word or and you'll, you'll understand what I think about fracking. <laughs> uh, can I ask you what you think about the, um, so these global targets for improving biodiversity. So it was the IG targets that were supposed to have been hit in 2020. And obviously we, we, we missed most of them. And the RSPB said we missed 17 or something, but the UK said they only missed 14. I mean, the government said they missed 14. So that's all up for argument, really. But anyway, the majority of them were missed. And now we have a new conference coming up in uh, Montreal in October, where they're going to settle a whole note, lots of more new targets that will potentially be missed. I mean, do you think... Just setting and resetting targets, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem to be a very, very effective way of driving change. I don't like the word uh, hate very much, but I, I, I have grown to hate these targets. You know, I'm fed up with targets. I'm fed up with 2025, 2030, worse 2040 and 2050. It will be too late then. We don't need targets. We need action now. That's what we need. This is just kicking it into the long grass and, and pushing the problem down the road. And the problem's not getting better. If you let things stew, they rarely go sweet, they go sour. The whole world's going pretty sour pretty fast. We need to take action now. The most frustrating thing is that we know what we have to do, but we're not doing it. And when, when it involves the implementation of solutions, we're not rolling them out rapidly enough or broadly enough. We're not, we're not handicapped. We're, we're, not, we're not, you know, flailing around looking for, for, for to how to get out of this mess. We've got a, a complete arsenal of abilities that we could, you know, just fire up and, and, and start making significant changes and differences with, but we're not doing it. They all want to talk about targets down the road. We, we, yeah. It doesn't work. They've never worked. We are down the road. We're down the road from the targets that they set X years ago. And as you've pointed out, we didn't meet them. Mm. Do you think anything like the uh, environmental land management scheme, which is which is the sort of uh, system of subsidies that would replace the common agricultural policy subsidies? I mean, is that does that look like it might be something that when it's all put together could be a game changer or is it just i don't know if i'm honest with you i haven't looked at it in enough detail but one thing's for sure it needs to be a game changer because mm -hmm. the common agricultural policy and farm subsidy systems that we've had ha have led us to the point that we are one of the most nature denuded countries in the world they mm -hmm. you know we've got to change the way that we farm we've got to change the way that we use the food, eat the food, and not waste the food. I mean, there are so many uh, aspects to this which are, are, are starkly obvious. Um, so, yes, those, we, I'm sure there were people out there who could draft that legislation and draft those ideas um, in, in a form which would be instantaneously beneficial. Will they be allowed to do it? 
Yeah. One thing she did say, which I thought was quite interesting, but I, I don't think I quite follow completely. And she told the Conservative Environment Network that she's going to commission a nationwide nature survey. And I'm quoting now to strengthen our efforts to pervert, to preserve the environment and saying that this would build an evidence base in a better way than the habitats directive to help us understand, understand habitats and species issues, etc. Um, but I, I don't fully understand how this is different from the, the biodiversity indicators or the, didn't it used to be a countryside survey quite a, a few years ago and that was scrapped because it was too expensive. Rachel, Rachel, we have, our finger more firmly on the pulse of what's happening to the UK's species and habitats than any other nation in the world, because we have an enormous number of highly qualified, able volunteers who go out and take part in very, very well-designed surveys to give us that information. So when we talk about declines in the UK, we do so with authority and accuracy. We, we don't need any more information to tell us that, you know, we need to take action off of the back of those very stark signals. Um, a, a nature consultation, well, uh, what can I tell you? You know, you know, we are a nation of animal lovers. People want a healthy environment. They recognised in lockdown that the natural environment was extremely important to them in terms of the quality of their life and their and, and, and their mental and physical health. Um, and, and they want it to be. They want more access to it, and they want its future to be more secure. You don't need a consultation for that. What you need is for someone to take the information that we've already got, implement the tools for conservation that we already have there, invest in them, and run them out now. This is a, a, another exercise which is just wasting time. Yeah, yeah. I will do something about it, but I just have to count the number of noobs first, you know, in the entire UK before I can start it. Yeah, and then consult on uh, what people think about it. Yeah, uh, the number of reviews and consultations and plans for plans and stuff is always quite breathtaking. I find. Um, but I did want to ask you uh, one more thing, and if you're if you're not happy to talk about it, then I completely understand. But I was wondering whether the kind of the some of the abuse that you'd received. Uh, of of late, um, you know, around you know, leaving dead animals at your property and things like that. Whether that had abated now, and whether uh, things. Yeah, it's it's, it's um it had it hasn't been as bad recently. I mean, I think the online abuse continues, and um, so on and so forth. And there are certain, um, you know, bodies that are doing everything they can to damage my credibility, um, integrity, reputation. Uh, they campaigned for me to lose my job. Um, because obviously that would be disabling in, in some ways. Um, and so that comes and goes in, and in intensity. Uh, what none of them have, have, have figured out is that the harder they try, the harder I work to oppose them. So when my property was damaged in an arson attack last year, I, I thought to myself the following day, okay, what can I do about this? Well, I'll have to buy some more gates. Um, and, uh, and take the advice of the police and get a bit more CCTV. Um, but what I'll really do is I'll just get up earlier and I'll work twice as hard to seek reform in, in, in the area that is being resisted by the people that, that, that did that vandalism. So that's what I do. I still the only thing I can do. It's creative. I, you know, you don't get mad you, you, and you don't get even, you get ahead. So, I, I recognised a long time ago as, an, an, as a punk rocker that anger is an energy, but you've got to use it creatively. You've got to do something positive with it. 
And that's what I do. So I, I don't get angry about those things. I get even more active um, in, in seeking the, the sorts of reforms and changes that I, that I think we ought to be making at the moment. So in a way, forgive the obvious pun, when they, when they do those sorts of things, they're, they're pure, just pouring fuel on the fire. Mm. Yeah. It must be very frustrating for them to see that reaction because obviously they were hoping for the opposite. So it must be, uh, must be galling and it's pleasing to hear. Mm. Well, yeah, you would think so. And you would think that they would get some measure of it and then try something else, but not yet. But should we end with, with uh, like a message for Liz Truss, if you could speak to her directly? I'm not entirely sure she listens to the Eco Chamber, to be honest with you. But Such if a you, show. you know, I know, I know. Um, but yeah, Liz, if you're listening, um, what would your message be to her? Uh, Liz, at some point, maybe sat down, and she will be an older lady, and she may have uh, a grandchild, or she may have a young person. And they will come up to her. And even if they don't know that she was once the prime minister of the UK, that young person might say to her, uh, what did you do when you needed to make a difference? Uh, and it's highly likely that that young person will be standing in a world which is not as nice as the one that we've got now. And there'll be a multitude of reasons for that. And that young person will hold all of us because this is a scenario that can play out to every last one of us and, that, and we will be held to account. And if we cannot reply that we did everything within our powers at that point to, to make the future of our planet a, a, a better, safer, more resilient and, and healthier place to be, then how are we going to look them in the eye and feel good about ourselves? How are you going to countenance that on your conscience? So, Liz, imagine that scenario. And when it comes to being able to exercise a judgment that will see all of those necessary improvements, make a decision not based upon some short-term political whim, some lobbyist's desires, or any other nefarious reason, make the decision based upon the fact that you will be held accountable by the youth of tomorrow. Thank you very much, Chris. That was uh, really powerful. Right, now we need to move on. And we're going to move on to our Knowing Me, Knowing You section. Simon Pickstone and Alice Fillon are here, and they're going to bring you the latest green policy from Brussels. In this episode, they're going to talk about how the EU Parliament has got a whiff of the UK's sewage scandal and just how angry that's made them. Over to you, Alice and Simon. Thanks, Rachel. Um, I think it's fair to say that UK sewage has been making a splash in, uh, on both sides of the channel, um, and including in the European Parliament, in particular in the Fisheries Committee. And Simon's got all the details. Thanks, Alice. Last week was back to school for the European Parliament, and we had the first meeting um, in, uh, of, the, of the European Parliament's Fisheries Committee, which took a turn for the dramatic, where they invited a senior European Commission official, Veronica Manfredi, who is the Deputy Director General of uh, the European Commission's Environment Department. So she's quite a big deal. And she's quite like, she's quite used to, she's, she's a big deal in water quality in particular, isn't she? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, DG Envy, the, the Commission's Director General for Environment, does a lot of water quality stuff. The Fisheries Committee were interested to hear from her because of news over the summer about, as you said, UK sewage washing ashore in France and 
Belgium and elsewhere. Yeah, dumped. It was dumped in the, the Channel and the North Sea after a series of storms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, Manfredi didn't mince her words. She said the Commission had deep concern about UK sewage problem. Um, she said that the Commission was investigating to see whether the UK was potentially in breach of uh, a clause signed in the Brexit deal on environmental non-regression, which is effectively a pledge by the EU and the UK, that they wouldn't undermine their environmental standards as they stood at the end of the Brexit transition period. So this was a reasonably big deal. And Manfredi's intervention came last week after three French MEPs kicked up a bit of a fuss because they were worried about the impact of UK sewage in the Channel and also in the North Sea. So they'd written a letter to the Commission which they demanded action from the commission commission you remember is the kind of eu civil service yeah the ones that kind of yeah the ones that's almost um like work on the strategy and the proposals and then send it through to get vetted and voted on essentially yeah exactly so that was like three french meps you know is, is it is it any coincidence that it's french meps well, no, I mean, I, I, this is an interesting one. Is there's clearly a political dimension to this. It's not to say that it's not to say that their comments aren't wrong. They're clearly the UK. No, I mean, a huge, they're based in fact. A, a, a huge sewage issue, as everyone will acknowledge. Um, the three MEPs in question, Pierre Carlskind, Nathalie Loiseau, Stephanie Yoncourtin, all belong to France's ruling party, so LREM, La République en Marche, which is President Macron's creation. I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, Macron has made relationships, the, the kind of cross-channel relationship, uh, kind of a politically significant one. There's a lot of, as you might recall, a lot of strife around access to fisheries. Um, yeah, there's been there's been a lot of uh, squabbling over fisheries rights, with um, concerns about different nationalities of fishermen infringing on others patch i guess as it yeah. were yeah yeah exactly so it's hard not to read a political dimension into this intervention and and you, you could imagine that it has the tacit approval of pe- people relatively hard in the french government yeah as well. i think it's also you know it's also fair to say that the relationship the political relationship between the uk and france at least on some level even if it's for sure has always got a bit of, um, shall we say, a competitive edge or a bit of a rivalry. I mean, it's certainly charged at the moment. And and, and uh, listeners may recall Liz Truss said some quite dramatic things about whether Macron, Macron, whether he was friend or foe, um, and, and Macron kind of responded with a slightly disbelieving... <laughs> <laughs> disbelieving i mean it's quite it's a dramatic thing yeah and it's tempting to kind of look at it just um in the prism of political drama but it's um these three meps are not coming out of nowhere right they all have absolutely not a specific you know they're even on the fisheries committee yeah i mean carlskin is the head he's the president of the european parliament's fisheries committee so he's a he's a a big deal and he's a, a voice and a voice that people listen to definitely yeah, yeah. and beyond their nationality they have the um the legitimacy in, yeah. to make that call i mean i think one of the things that was interesting listening into the the european parliament fisheries committee's hearing um last week with the commission was that you did also have meps from various countries talk about the fact this isn't this isn't simply a uk problem that's actually there's a bunch of member states that that do have issues with their 
sewage yeah. and sewage being dispersed into the ocean. Yeah. Um, this is where there's a little bit maybe of more theatrical, uh, you know, the whole sending a letter and so on. Whereas, potentially, yeah. 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 But, but I mean, I mean, it's one of these things where the commission is always acting on against member states who are breaching EU rules and sewage discharges. Yeah. So, so there's a very specific directive, right? That gets yeah. uh, involved. Well, the, urban, the urban wastewater directive. I yeah, the wastewater mean. treatment directive. Yeah, is which is a 1991 directive. So you know we've had decades to. And yet, and yet. To follow it, and yet, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, a, a, a example, for instance. I mean, even just this year, we, we cover. It's a process in the EU called the infringements procedure, which is basically the process by which the European Commission takes legal action or threatens to take legal action against member states who it thinks have been. Breaking, yeah. either breaking EU rules or simply that they haven't properly put their EU rules into the, the EU rules into national legislation. Yeah, so I think that's the important part in a sense because it's a slightly more indirect procedure because it'll be about directives and there is some difference. Um, there's a little bit of difference in different member states as to how these rules are implemented. So there's some leeway there. But there's still some oversight as to the actual outcome of yeah, absolutely. the domestic laws put in place. Yeah, but in in the context of in, in the context of urban wastewater, there's some very very clear transgressions of EU rules from 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 existing member states. How you choose to achieve the outcome? It's left up to the member states or to the regional governments, whoever is in charge of that in in, in the particular member state. But we had, for example, in April, the European Commission brought a case against Spain for breaching the Urban Wastewater Treatment Directive um, on the back of the fact that there's 133 urban agglomerations, so towns or cities of various sizes that have an inadequate wastewater treatment basically going on. So that's, that case is now ongoing in the, in the European Court of Justice. We had in February both Malta and Poland taken to the ECJ um, and in the case of Poland, Poland's got a particularly bad record when it comes to treating its sewage correctly. The, the European Commission said that there was a thousand towns or cities within Poland that are basically directly discharging sewage into rivers, lakes or the sea. It's a long process as well before it gets to the Court of Justice. So to get to that point, basically a member state would have to ignore uh, repeated um, letters and notices from the Commission it would have to basically just put nothing in place to remedy the situation. Yeah. And or, then it gets or, taken or, to court. Or the commission assesses that the measures that's put in place are inadequate. That, yeah, that they are insufficient. Yeah, but it is a long process. You know, you've got um, a member state has a series of, of, of opportunities to fix the situation. To mend its ways. <laughs> I mean, it's also, it's also useful to note that the UK has two existing infringement procedures against it on the back of of um, breaching wastewater rules. So it was a theme even while the UK was a member of yeah. the EU. And it's likely to remain so for, you know, potentially years to come. Yeah, I mean, and something that um, you have mentioned before as well is that um, traditionally there has been more um, cases to do with water pollution because of the nature of it, the nature of that pollution. It's a relatively easy one, yeah, to, to, to track, yeah. I would say compared to, say, the nitrates directive, um, where you've got 
the issue of agricultural pollution and that's in some ways much harder to and because yeah yeah because of various um reasons but yeah typically something to do with wastewater treatment sewage being leaked where it shouldn't or infrastructure not being in place is easier to monitor basically the uk is far from alone in not quite being up to par in a slightly euphemistic uh... i think that's a fair read i think whatever your however much the situation has been politicized it's clear that the uk has got a major sewage problem yeah um but it's it's far from alone among european countries in that respect yeah it's tied to things like aging infrastructure you know it's not the the uk just deciding to go rogue i think what's interesting there though is that it does show that the uk and the eu are going to have to navigate those sorts of issues more often potentially yeah and I, but i think it also it, it, we can't ignore the political dimension of this which is that the, the commission can't possibly go over every single instance of environmental regression that takes place in the uk let's be honest quite a lot so it is going to have to make choices about what it chooses to pursue and what it won't and i, I think sewage is probably enough of an important issue for enough member states that this is something that it has indicated it will take seriously and will potentially pursue action through the mechanism outlined in the Brexit deal. Yeah, so it's kind of like, I guess it's also, it's a fitting example to see the um, the issues with, yeah, moving to more, in the sense a more international legal framework governing the EU and the UK, which means then that those political dimensions are going to be more and more important. Yeah, back to you, Rachel. Thank you, Alice, and thank you, Simon. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thanks to Tess Colley, Simon Pickstone, and Alice Fillin. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please go to endsreport.com. Don't forget to subscribe, and we will see you next time.